podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. They might talk about human music, film, books, football and box sets, exercise and maybe even food. Trivia and sport, politics and health, sometimes well-being too. On the life with Brian. On the life with Brian. Hello, you seem to have joined us again on Life with Brian, the podcast hosted by Sir Alex Ferguson's favourite player, Brian McClare, with myself, Mark, and Matthew on backing vocals. How are you both doing now that this mammoth football season has finally ended? Uh, I think you'll find that his favourite player was Eric Cantona. Mammoth would have been his favourite player for a very brief period of time. He's not bitter about it at all. No, no, no. Not that much. All good this end, Mark. Thanks. Good to see everyone. Uh, And as usual, we have a special guest. Uh, Well... He's a singer, songwriter and broadcaster who is best known for fronting the hugely successful band Deacon Blue for the past 30-something years. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Ricky Ross. Welcome, Ricky. How's it going? Very well. Thank you that, for that something. That was good. That covered a multitude of sins, that 30-something. <laughs> we paint with bro- uh, broad strokes here. Yes, that's good. Let's begin with, uh, for me, Ricky, uh, when I was uh, looking through various different things, I fell upon uh, this, and I bought this in '87, um, and I immediately recorded it so I could listen to it in the car because you can, well, I mean, you can play LPs in the car, but I didn't have a, a CD player, and I had decided that that summer that I would go sleeve Glasgow and, and go down to Manchester to sign for Manchester United, and they gave me a car and. I used to travel up and down in this car and the day before pre-season training, I was driving the evening before I'm driving down to, to the hotel that Manchester United had put me up in and I was listening to this album all the way down and I was, I kept, um, rewinding and listening to various different songs that I liked, you know, Dignity, Chocolate Girl in particular. And I got in this car, they given me, uh, had a, a petrol gauge, but didn't have any warning light on it. And yeah. I ran, and I ran out of petrol. But well, only realised after I'd, I'd uh, got a refill. So I ran out of petrol on the motorway heading into Manchester to pull over onto the uh, hard shoulder, and I had to get out of the car and walk down to the telephone and see if somebody could come out and help. And a guy came out in a pickup about, about half an hour later, and he put in uh, just enough fuel for me to get from there to the hotel. But I had to pay. I had no money. And a checkbook, and uh, this album of Deacon Blues cost me in total fifty six pounds. <laughs> if I hadn't been listening to it, I'm sure I would have had enough fuel, you know, to limped to the the the, the hotel was just the very next um, turn off, right by the next junction. So I ran out of fuel uh, about a hundred yards from the junction. So that's my. Uh, 
my first and earliest uh, moment of having an experience with you and your band. Well, I'm sorry about the cost, but I, I'm thinking of a famous story that I remember reading about your old boss whose excuse for being on the hard shoulder was he had the skitters. So <laughs> I was speed, speeding. <laughs> I was, I was that speeding, was... that's what it was. <laughs> At least you didn't have that excuse. No. <laughs> Petrol seems more legit. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I'm, he is one of the, I mean, I've, I've not been in the car that often with him driving but he's one of the worst drivers I've ever come across. <laughs> and I, just not not long after that, um, I uh, I was I was driving back and from a weekend trip back back home, and we're driving down the M6, and I no, there was a I noticed there was a, a a queue of traffic, and when we got to the front of the traffic, there'd been a, a little bump, and uh, a Jaguar had shunted a car in front, and as I went past, it was Alec Ferguson that had been driving the Jaguar. <laughs> They'd been messing about, trying to fix the radio somewhere, not paying attention. Traffic slowed down, and he ran right into the back of whoever it was in front of him. But he had so many things like that, you know, and that, but that kind of thing of of being able to get away with he got away with that speeding thing at that particular moment. <laughs> and he got away with it. That, that, so the guy who was doing it was uh, was brilliant at um, at getting people off if you paid a. A hefty fee, you know, because David Beckham also got off with uh, speeding uh, on the bypass because he claimed this is uh, he claimed he was getting chased by the paparazzi. <laughs> he so that was his story. So there's yeah, the skitter story. And also well, that's the, interesting. You see, I I don't remember exactly when this was, but you'll remind me now because. 1987, if, if that's a you, you went to Manchester United. I was going to ask you, had you been in the same team as Wee Gordon? But but he he would have gone by that time. We no, no, he was at United. He was still there. Yeah, he was United because he, he was one of the, because he was one of the, uh, he was, when I went down, Gordon was fantastic to me. Yeah, he, he advised me, good advice right away. He said, look, yeah, uh, you should be looking around Wimslow, um, for the house. The only he says the only negative of, of Wimslow is that the manager and Archie Knox's assistant live there, so you're more likely to get caught if you go out to the pub. However, if you go down to the other side, to the other head, the other side into Hale and Hale Barnes and Bowden, that's where Norman Whiteside and Kevin Moran and Brian Robson uh, live. He said, and I don't think you'll be able to to uh, keep up with their drinking. He says, just come with me. He says, we'll be this like quiet couple of pint guys, you know, not, uh, and even a lot of the, the, the people talk about that drinking culture. It was still a bit of a myth in the sense of the, they curtailed their drinking activities 48 hours before a, before a game. But they, uh, but they could, uh, they could have a, a very decent swally, as you say, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, no. but, um, but Gordon, so I saw Gordon playing at Manchester United uh, when they came up to play uh, United did, uh, in the UEFA Cup. That's right, yeah. And I remember seeing you, and I think my dad still lived in Dundee. That's why he actually uh, retired to Glasgow, but he had this ambition. He wanted to come to, he wanted to come to all the football grounds in Glasgow, and he hadn't been to Parkhead. And uh, for some, now this, again, I might get this wrong, but. I think we took him to the, this may have been later, but I, I, I seem to remember taking him to a game and going to, this is not something I would have done very often, but because I was probably still early days in Glasgow, it was a bit of a novelty. And we went to Parkhead to see a Celtic versus Aberdeen game. And I think that was the one where I saw you pick up the ball in your own half and go that, up at half and score. Would you remember that game? That was Dundee United. 
Was it the, was Dundee United? Yeah. Yeah. So maybe it was. That's why for uh, some reason I'm confused. That's why I'm saying I'm, I'm getting confused. But I remember, yeah. So maybe that's why I wasn't full of praise at the time. But I kind of grudgingly thought, oh, that's a good goal. Well, yeah, I, mean, I do remember the goal because it was one of them where you start off running, and you're, you're looking for. I think the problem was that I was looking for somebody to pass the ball, to, <laughs> there <was no> one <laughs> and there was nobody available, so I, I just get. <laughs> I just kept going from the next. Could have passed it to us. I found, yeah, I found myself at the edge of the Dundee United box. I thought, well, I'm a, and I, I didn't score many goals from outside the box. I think that was from outside the box, and I thought, oh well, I'm not, I'm here now. I might as well have a, have a goal, you know. And I'm not, I'm not sure if it was, if it was, uh, I'm not sure if it was Hamish or Billy Thompson that would have been in goals at the time, but they were, uh, um, it, it, it did, I wouldn't say it flew past them, but it went past them. So yeah, it's a. Seeing as we're talking about Dundee United, I wanted to go back to the sort of beginning, and I've done a little bit of research, Ricky, into you know your your time of, of following the club, and you, you obviously grew up in a city where there are two clubs pretty much two hundred yards apart from each other. Um, but you chose United, and didn't that have something to do with a, a certain Manchester United supporting relative of yours? Was it... Actually, yes, absolutely true. Um, and uh, Dundee United and Dundee. Very close, close together, and I had an uncle that had come home, and I think he'd attempted, we'd attempted to go to Dundee, and we sort of ended up in the old days. Remember the 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 big gates used to open about twenty minutes to go, fifteen minutes to go to let people out, and and we kind of went in there. My uncle was a missionary from Zambia, and he just couldn't believe the bad language. He just thought it was shocking, and that was he'd sort of put a stop to go to football, but but his sons were coming home on holiday. They they lived in they were in boarding school then in Lancashire. And one supported Everton and one supported Manchester United. And uh, they came home for the East, I think the Easter holidays and persuaded my mum that they should they, they should take me to a football game. And my mum my mum thought football games involved people putting bottles of beer over your head and you know and or stabbing you because that's what her impression of what Celtic and Rangers came up to and it was like oh, everything kicked off. So this was a I think it was an end of season game or or something like that, um, and it was Dundee United versus Aberdeen, which well these days I don't, most of the time would be a, a very big game. For some reason, it didn't have a lot of meaning attached to it. I don't think. Anyway, we won five nil, uh, and I just thought this is the way things are, <laughs> are going to be <laughs> naively, and uh, and I support Dundee United, and and that at that time. I would say most of the guys in my class, there was always people, there was always people who supported Celtic Rangers and Dundee. You, you'd get that in any sort of Scottish town. But the majority of people supported Dundee. Dundee were the big team. They'd won the league, you know, in the early 60s. Um, they'd been in the, the European Cup and they had big crowds and they had big, you know, big support. And they used to kind of slightly laugh at us because we had a sort of diddy ground and, you know, not, not, not much of a stand and all that kind of thing. Um, but we were kind of slightly on the up, I think, and and there was a, a significant little minority of us in, in the school class that supported Daniel United. So yes, it was thanks to my cousin who was he was a Man United fan. His brother was an Everton fan, and they told me stories of what happened at Old Trafford and and Goodison. Did you, uh, who, what players would have been playing when you first went to see Dundee United? Well, the guy that scored a hat trick that day was was Davy Wilson, who'd played for Rangers. Oh, and, right, uh, yeah. I think he went on to manage Partick Thistle. Uh, he played for Scotland, obviously, he was a fantastic player. Um, and he, yeah, he was on the wing. Um, I don't know if he was playing that night, but he probably came over slightly later. It was Kenny Cameron. 
and uh, Kenny Cameron played for Dundee. In fact, I think he won the Golden Boot when he when he signed for us at one point. He scored about forty goals at some point. Um, and uh, goalkeeper was um, the uh, what's his first name? Mackay, who, who later who later uh, managed Dundee as well. Because there was a lot of coming and going between the between the teams. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you see, you got a lot of Dundee cast offs. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> We've got a cast off manager, even. Yeah. <laughs> I saw Jim McLean, who was obviously Dundee United's manager. I actually saw him playing in a semi final of the Scottish Cup versus uh, my pal took me up to Muirton. And these days, you play the Scottish Cup semi finals a bit like they did in England at a neutral ground. And it was Aberdeen versus St. Johnston. And Jim McLean was actually playing in that, that game. So, yeah, a lot of these, these guys, Dennis Gillespie, Doug Smith. Uh, yeah, Don McKay in goals. Um, um, Andy Rowland would have been around at that time, who was our first ever uh, cap. He got a Scottish League cap. Uh, we, we didn't actually have any players that had been capped for Scotland at that point. So, you know, it, it was, you're talking about a team that had really not long come up from the, the old second first division. Up. Yeah. What did he talk? He talked about the, the relationship with Dundee and Dundee United there. I mean, you've. You know, you've, you've moved to Glasgow in the years since. Is it? I imagine it's a very different rivalry. I mean, you've played Brian with um, against Rangers for Celtic. I assume it's nowhere near as poisonous as, as an old firm rivalry. It, it's just not. It's just not similar at all. I remember coming. I remember. Uh, in fact, I put it in a line of a song. I, I wrote a song for Paul Sturrock's testimonial uh, called "I'm Proud to Be an Arab." <laughs> it used to be a. It was basically a racist slag. Doesn't ever call the Arabs or the Arabs. <laughs> And uh, someone uh, basically started a whole lot of pin badges in the 80s I'm proud to be an Arab, which was great. Um, and in it, I wrote a line about a song uh, about the halftime results going up at Tannerice. And we were actually in a little enclosure near the, near the, near the tunnel. And one of the United staff came out and went, Dundee had one up at Ibrox. And it was a kind of general feeling of good, you know, because if Dundee were up against Celtic Rangers, I think all of us were, were happy. And I would actually go to see United one week and my dad and I would go and see Dundee the next week because he'd grown up going to see Dundee. And if it was against Clyde or Morton, we were just glad to see them getting thumped. But if it was against Celtic Rangers, we we wanted them to, to beat them. And I, we were doing a gig up in Dundee recently, a charity gig, and I was joking about us going down and Dundee going up and... You know the fact that we would would wish to be in you know having a sort of derby against each other because both United and Dundee fans want derbies because it brings more income into the clubs. And I was thinking you could joke about this in Dundee, but if you ever go close at a gig in Glasgow anywhere, like Barlands or you know, the Hyde or anywhere, if you ever go close to even alluding to old firm uh, kind of things. You just don't, just, just don't, don't do it. You know, no. just it's a bad idea because no one can sort of joke about it. Really, um, they can't try that. That uh, Brian will tell you that. I'm sure that there's lots right. of great chats you'll have with people of all business size, totally in private. But in a big situation like that, it just becomes. I would say, wouldn't you, Brian? It becomes. I think, yeah. I, I think when you get to these things like that, it's a totally different thing, Ricky. So you go, you go to a concert to celebrate the concert together. It's yeah. one of the few occasions that the people of the West can actually get together and celebrate exactly. the joy of something else. <laughs> you don't really want then someone on stage, some sort of asking, you know, reminding you of what it's like from day to day. Cause it's yes. just, the, it's not just about the games whenever they occur. It's something that's, you live in Glasgow now, you know that fine well, you know, that it's just something that's there. It's just there, isn't it? 
It's not. It's a, it it's is not there, a tangible yeah, thing, but it's yeah, there. So yeah, you yeah. go a lot of concert to your guest. It's an escapism, isn't it? Like if you go to yeah. cinema, you go to theatre, you go to the football. You know, it's your team. It's escaping yeah. from life. When you go into the to watch music in the Barlands or or uh, uh, anywhere in the other venues in West Scotland, you want to go there and enjoy yourself and just forget everything that's going on in your life, irrespective of where you're brought up or what football team you're you're allied to. There's a famous story of. Um, I think it was Ryan Adams when he first played the Barlands, or maybe one of the times he played the Barlands early on, and someone threw up a Celtic <laughs> And of course, you know, <laughs> I think you do it at the front of the stage, you put it on. And of course, it went nuts, you know. Uh, I wasn't there, but I heard the story, and it reminded me of being in Manchester. We were in Manchester in, now Brian will tell me the year, and it was a time when Man United still hadn't won that much. Did did you win? So I'm trying to think we would be touring. I think it was 91 we were touring and we were touring in the autumn. Would that be the League Cup maybe you'd won in yeah. the autumn that year? Yeah, 91? Was no, May 91 Cup Winners Cup. Cup but that. what did you win in the in maybe like the December or the autumn? Would that be uh, the maybe the League Cup or the Carling Cup or something like that? Uh, no, they wouldn't have been played. Or maybe what I tell you might be might, might be ninety four. What did they win in ninety four in, in yeah, the spring yeah. of ninety four? The FA Cup. The FA Cup. Yeah. The league so in we the were, FA Cup. Yeah. We were in <laughs> we're in Manchester. Lorraine had gone out shopping. I think we we're doing a couple of nights. Gone out to the sort of shops and oh, man, you know, I managed had one. I had one. Put that on in the own. Put that you know, ten bob strip. Put that on in the own because they all like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they didn't. <laughs> and that's not to say, and, and I don't buy that whole bullshit about Manchester being, you know, real man, Canadians being man, uh, City fans, all that. It's, it's not true at all, but it is true that there's a big divide. <laughs> and you just, same as, same as you're doing Liverpool, you, know, you, just, yeah. you just don't. You oh, just don't no, know, yeah. No. So, yeah, it's exactly uh, the yeah. same thing. But, um, yeah, but even those things that Manchester and City are not the same as. Being in Glasgow, it's not the same in Liverpool either, you know. Rivalry mm. tends to be that maybe a day or two before the game, during the game, and then after it's uh, everybody's fairly friendly and go to the I mean, for example, Liverpool. Matthew lives in Liverpool, so he knows what it's like before and after the games, you know. Whereas in Glasgow, the, the, when the old firm are playing, it's the only day where every single pub has got a bouncer on. Yeah. And and that's right at the very beginning of the day. That's if they're open. Well, no, and it depends. What, and that's yeah. The game, the games, they always kick off now early twelve or half twelve now, really. So, uh, so and there always there'll be places that you 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 really can't go into, you know. And there's and there's no colours as well, which is quite right too. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's a bit. Um, I, I took my son to an Arsenal Chelsea game, and we sat sit there, kind of going. Really, <laughs> this is like a, you know, it was, it was just so flat. This, you know, and they were both quite up at the time. You know, it was in the it was in the Emirates, hadn't been the Emirates, and I went, really, this is a derby. <laughs> Ricky, um, you, you've already just touched on there, um, Dundee United's sorry season. So perhaps yes. we should just skate over that, skate over that. A, thank you, thank happier you. times. Um, how much do you miss the nineteen eighties and those great uh, Jim McLean days? Hugely, because unfortunately, I I left Glasgow in the eighties. I actually left um, in the in the Christmas before we won the league, so I was going back up to see us. And I'd sort of kind of fallen out of love with football in the late seventies. And football, I don't know if Brian's too young to remember this. So you guys probably are, but but certainly in the late seventies, football sort of hooliganism sort of just became. It just put me off. You know, people got going to games. 
you know, even if you're standing there, you, you, you just couldn't avoid things. It was before the days of segregation as well, which I still think is a shame in some ways that, you know, you can't just stand beside your pal that supports the other team. But anyway, it was still a bit, it was still a bit of a, um, a, you know, it was just an odd atmosphere and that I didn't really enjoy it. So I came through to Glasgow and I I still massively loved Dundee United, but I wasn't a regular uh, game goer. And then suddenly we were doing really well. And I was finding myself going up to Dundee or going a lot of away games. I was going to Morton, going to Parkhead, going to Ibrox and so on. Um, so it was, it was very exciting. And interestingly enough, as soon as the band took off, uh, one of the things that you were able to say when you went to Italy or France or, or wherever, Spain, was, you know, I haven't done the United sport and they knew who you were because, you know, this is the team that the year that Brian was talking about, the record came out, this is the team that we beat Barcelona home and away. So um, we'd, we'd beaten all manner of teams across Europe and, and sort of punched well above our weight. And I think we do... You know, it's funny. Dave, Dave Bowman's a pal from from these days, and uh, you know, I was mid-season kind of chatting to him by text, and he was just saying, "We need Jim McLean." You know, it just it just always needs someone. You know, even though the players really didn't like him. I mean, that's 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 really true. Unfortunately, they did not like him, and, and not in the way that Brian probably jokes about Fergie, and players probably joke about Fergie's control and his dominance and so on. I think at the bottom of that, and Brian will correct me if I'm wrong, but whenever you hear Man United players talk, there's deep respect there. Um, and the trouble with Dun United was Jim was an amazing tactician. And me, I mean, he, he made the team punch well above their weight, but they just didn't really like him and didn't respect him in that way. So, you know, you've got to be careful what you wish for. You Football... People of management of people has moved on 30 years since these days. So I do wish that we had someone of that ability back, but I'm not sure Brian can comment on this. I'm not sure that style of, you know, boss management will work these days with young players. Well, I think what you're saying that I think the players did respect Jim, but I mean, I just think that, I mean, you, Jim McLean and Fergie are similar in ways in the, in the sense of how angry they would get and, yeah. determined they were to win games. But I had, uh, when you're on the pitch, you don't uh, tend to hear very much of what's going on either in the, the, the for many of the coaching staff, when I was a Celtic, when I was in Scotland, say from 81 to the 87, but I'd, I'd broken my toe, uh, and the game that I was, I came back into the squad was at Tanadice. So you had to go and warm up near the dugout, you know, and that just that little strip by the side of the pitch. So I could I was not far away from Jim McLean and on that side of the pitch was Eamon Bannon. Mm. He was playing in the well the left side of the pitch almost mm. going up the hill. And I could not believe what he was saying. And he never stopped for, for the whole of the first half and he castigated them and and he was calling them he was calling them a cunt the whole what, yeah. five minutes, and I'm like, what is it? And it, they never stopped for the whole... And then I think the other side, that might have been Ralph Milne's turn, you know, yeah. when you played on the right-hand side. <laughs> no, no, I can maybe go on the pitch, so I didn't think yeah. maybe I'd go on the pitch somewhere. And I thought, because I'd, I'd, I'd be, by then I'd spent some time in under-21s, and I'd, uh, and the other people, so I knew uh, I'd come across uh, David Bowman, who who played for Dundee United mm. and and then more small pass and different people and they would you'd all tell story, different stories about managers and they would tell stories about Jim mm. and you'd be, how would be going 
Oh, I, th- I thought Jock Wallace was bad because I had to Tim for a season at Motherwell, but he sounded... <laughs> and and then I had experience with Jim McLean because in, yeah. in those times when the under-21s coach, he didn't have a dedicated coach. So Jock Steen was a manager of, of Scotland at that at those moments when I was in under-21s. So you had different coaches would take different games. And we played a game, I think it might have been at Dens Park, and the coach for that game was Jim McLean. So we'd had him for the two days before in the lead up to the game and I'd never met him before you know and I just thought that naively in a way that I really wanted to enjoy playing football I didn't yeah. I'd enjoyed even although I'd have been shouted at a lot by Chuck Wallace and different things could not believe I think we won the game as well and I couldn't believe the half time tongue lashing we got from Jim McLean you know I, I just just like I, couldn't, I just thought to myself, I, I can't. If I was playing for this guy, I, I couldn't. I'd have yeah. to stop playing because I, I just maybe you just like eventually when I when I went to United and I got hair dryers all the time, you grow a rhino skin, you got used to it, and you understood what the reason for it was. But but Jim seemed to be a completely level above Different things. Level. Yeah, I mean, the saddest thing for me was um, in twenty. 20- 10, there was the Dundee United anniversary dinner and I was singing at it and uh, lots of players and, and one of the some of the loveliest guys you could meet in that league winning side, Paul Hegarty, Stephen yeah. Neary, Morris Malpass, Hamish, I'm mean, going through the whole team obviously, but really lovely guys um, and a really warm camaraderie, Johnny Holt, you know, there's a great camaraderie between that team obviously because they won the league and they were all all, all of that squad and, and the squads that came after were, were on stage and Jim was given a special award, uh, Jim McLean, and they were all standing behind him and I was kind of quite near the front because I was performing at the thing. I was watching their faces and there was just no love there in the way that there should have been, really, you know. There was still... And, and even if you talk to them now, there's a sort of boiling resentment really you know right, of, of, which you can understand from what the story you tell as well you know because yeah, you but... think of someone like Eamon Bannon what a lovely guy and what an, what a bright guy what an incredibly articulate man you know he was Eamon was the one that was always put out to do the media stuff because he was so good at doing it and the notion that that happens to him you know it's just oh, that's the meaning yeah. I, I didn't I ain't gonna say just talking about Eamon that he went to Hearts after he left under United yeah. Yeah. And I know that from people who played at Hearts that um, Eamon uh, never had a television. He didn't have, I don't know when he was hit, but I don't know if he's ever had a television, but mm. I know that, that when he was playing for Hearts, he didn't have a television. He just read and listened to the music, you know? So yeah. I thought that was pretty impressive. You yeah. know, that, that, unlike the unlike the kids that I used to teach in Mary Hill when I confessed that I didn't have a TV and they kind of just basically put me down as a complete weirdo. I thought yeah. you were going to say they went, they went and got one from you that out of somebody <laughs> else's house. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. The next day they came in with a television for <laughs> yeah. you. you know? It was just like, that's bad, that. That's bad, that. <laughs> Do you, do you think for both of you, do you think that Dundee United team under McLean got the, the credit and the respect they deserve? Because, I mean, Aberdeen get a lot of noise with under Fergie in the 80s, but I mean, you were playing against them, Brian, and you were watching them. Oh, they, they had, and, they, yeah, they had the, the very, very few games I remember in that six-year period where we had a positive result against Dundee United, either at Celtic Park or certainly at Tannadice. Very, very, very few. I think that maybe the one thing that kind of for whatever reason, uh, is the they they lost their European final, whereas 
Aberdeen won their European final, you know. But if you look mm. at if you look at that journey, I bet it was Aberdeen's as well, but you look at the, the journey from Dundee United, who they played and who they beat, and the style of football, particularly at Tanadice, uh, if you watch back the highlights of those games, which was what we got to see then, uh, they were played some great football and they beat a lot of really good teams. And I think they surprised the, a lot of these teams by the fact that they were so good, particularly at home. Yeah, I, I think the... You know, it's funny. My, my son always is into football sports, Dun United now. Um, and, you know, I'll remind him of certain things that happened in football, like Nottingham Forest, you know, winning two... You know, I say, you know you know the, what, what you call the Champions League and we call the European Cup... Uh, they won it twice. And he looked at me and I said, you know what, Aston Villa won it, you know? And it, it, it's funny because there's certain things in that, that happened in that era in the eighties really that are, are remarkable. And for whatever, for, for all the reasons that people think football is improving, and I'm sure there are lots of ways in which it is well, improving. Which people? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are aspects of that that are true. You know, well, that aspects. ability, that ability for teams like Dundee United, for Ipswich, for Nottingham Forest, for Aston Villa, you know, for all these things that were possible, are pretty, pretty well impossible now. You know, I mean, even winning the league, I think we are the last team outside Celtic Rangers to 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 win the league. I mean, I can't remember did Aberdeen win it after that, but certainly Aberdeen, Dundee United, and Aberdeen, obviously. No, I think that's, no, I think you're right. I think Dundee United. I think Dundee United has won the league in '85. Then eighty, we won it in '83. '83. Yes, this is unfortunately the. Yeah, I think Aberdeen might won it. Won it after that, but you know, around about that time, it was you know it was nip and tuck, and then and even you're talking about Hearts. It was a year, obviously, not long after that when Hearts were were a goal away from winning the league. I mean, it was, it was, you know, these were these were heady times, and. They sort of, even as my boyhood and the way my dad and my uncles and people like that talked, you know, it was almost as if that era had gone as well. And it came back in the 80s because when I was growing up watching football, it did seem like it was impossible to take on Celtic and Rangers. But suddenly we were. And of course, the whole European stuff was was, was incredible. But I'm, I'm just not sure that that's, that's even remotely possible now. I, mean, well, I, I think it's almost yeah. impossible for Scottish teams to get out of the qualifying stages of of the European competitions. I'm, I'm not talking about Celtic and Rangers here because I think they're almost in a league apart financially. But but the other teams... So, yeah, I mean, it was incredible. I, I think, I think uh, Matthew, the question's right. Certainly we celebrate it. I think a lot of people do recognise it um, in Scotland, what Dundee United achieved. But But it was incredible. Okay, well, enough about football for just now. I wanted oh, to. I've, talk... I've just got one more question about. Oh, all right, go on then, Brian. I just wanted to know, Ricky, if you were a a, a, a serial invader of the pitch, or was it, <laughs> or was it just in nineteen ninety four at Hamden? You know, nineteen ninety four at Hamden was my 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 moment, uh, and you know, I always had my defence prepared for that day because I'd been. At six losing cup, Scottish Cup finals, I'd also been at losing league league cup finals. You know, what I mean, I'd been I'd been through the mill, I'd been through one in ninety one when everyone told me it was the best cup final ever, and against the mother one, that was the worst cup final ever because we should have won it, we didn't. My dad was there; it was his last cup final, and in ninety four, my dad had gone; he died a few months before, and uh, you know, by hook or by crook, and I think it was more by by a combination of both, really. 
uh, bit of luck. An optically great Dundee United team and and probably quite a good Rangers team who were on the way to winning a treble. We won the cup and uh, I jumped on. I, I, my pal, who was a photographer, I said, go and get Bo, Davy Bowman over because I knew Davy well and I gave him a big hug. And at this point, we were surrounded by... <laughs> Three, there's a picture in my book about this. Three members of Strathclyde Constabulary, one of whom said, uh, "You're, you're, you're the problem." <laughs> Basically, I, think you thought, I don't know what you thought was going to happen. You're going to be a riot. <laughs> but, maybe, uh, maybe listen to some of the music. Yeah, <laughs> 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 uh, yeah. He, uh, but I just thought, well, if you know, if you arrest me, I'm going to say, "Look, you know, your honour." I've I've suffered too much for me not to celebrate. <laughs> mm. I did hear a story about you. To correct me if I'm wrong. Urinating at a Dundee United game because one of your cousins told you that's what happened at Goodison or, or Old Trafford. Is that correct? Yeah, this is this is true. This is a story that I uh, my cousins. So one I went to Goodison and one I went to to uh, Old Trafford. And they lived in a boarding school just outside Southport. And they got away at weekends to go to these games. And they came back and told me stories. And I saw pictures of George Best and Brian Malone and, you know, all these kind of guys. Um, and uh, heard stories of Harry Catrack and some Matt Busby and all that kind of thing. And uh, they said, you know, it's really packed in behind the goal. The, the, the Stratford end and I can't remember what was it the Glad is it Gladys Gladys Street, yeah, yeah. Gladys Street, yeah. Gladys Street, yeah. Uh, and all these sort of places, you know, it's packed. You can see it on, you can see it on the telly. And he, and and they said, you know, it's it, it's so crushed that people can't even move. They can't even move to go to the toilet. They just have to pee when they're standing there. And I was about I don't know maybe <laughs> ten years old or something like that. And I was like, I, there was something about it just sort of, for some reason pricked my imagination, you know. And they took me to this, after the Aberdeen game. We went back to another game, and it was against say like Dunbar. I don't even honestly know who it was against, but it was a really meaningless midweek league cup tie or something like that, beginning of the season. And it was in Dunbar, and we had the you remember before the days of, of of seats, there was there was what were called crush barriers. I didn't know they were called. I didn't know they were crush barriers because there was never a crush at Town and Ice, and uh, I just thought they were putting your pie in your ball for you were people leaning on, and there was two <laughs> old guys leaning on this thing behind me, and I was at the wall, and it got near half time, and I looked at my cousins and said, you know, I need to go for a pee, and uh, they said. Um, you know, looked at each other and, and I said, you know, should I do that thing that you, you told me about? Because I was quite excited by this idea, you know. <laughs> and they, they looked at each other kind of knowingly, knowing that this was a great chance. So I went and just went, yeah. <laughs> and there I was on the perimeter wall and Andy Rowland, who's the right back with Eddie Wright, is going up and down the wing and I'm peeing against the wall and there's two old guys behind me in bonnets, you know, the classic old guys. And one says to the other, the laddie doesn't care any better. <laughs> and I realised at this time that my mother would rather I had been stabbed or had a, bo- <laughs> had a bottle put over my head had she known. <laughs> I wanted to talk about music because it's something that you, um, you're both very keen on, as we know. Um, the, the music scene in Scotland when you were growing up or in Dundee, particularly when you were younger, Ricky, what was, what was inspiring you to ultimately become a musician? Well, one of the characters, that, funnily enough, one of the people that really inspired me, there was a little gig uh, in not far from the art school where we used to go to called Lanes, and there's a band there called Skeets Bolivar. And 
they had a bass player called Michael Mara, um, and Michael uh, had ended up going solo solo record. And uh, not long before I, I left Dundee, where I was still working in youth work, I, I bumped in. I knew about Michael and I, I knew about his music, and I bumped into him, and he was incredibly encouraging, and he would write letters to you and so on. And then when we got to a point much later on in Glasgow, I was doing a benefit show, and um, went not long before Deacon Blue really kind of broke. Uh, released our first record and Michael would, came through and did a show for me and then, and then eventually came on tour with us and so on. So he was around I'd heard about this guy uh, there was a band called Clark's Commandos and that was a guy who's now a really lifelong friend, Gary Clark, who played with Danny Wilson and they were they were, they'd gone away to London. Um, I, I only know this in retrospect. They'd gone away to London hoping to make it and nothing happened in London. They came back to Dundee and it was, this is a classic thing that happened in the 80s. Record companies weren't really interested in, 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 you know, bands that were going to London. They were interested in finding out discoveries, the, the, what's going on up there, you know, what's going on in the little enclave in, in the northeast of Scotland. So when, as soon as they went back up to Dundee, they suddenly got all this interest back. And of course, they ended up getting signed as Danny Wilson. So they were sort of, you know, in and around it. But really, I, I sort of came, I just came through just friends. I was I was really involved in the church um, and I was playing music with my friends in the youth group. And we were sort of, I was sort of playing a piano and keyboards and stuff like that. And we, the group didn't really go very far. And we sort of became a punk band for about five minutes. And then we split up. And then I, I just started going off and writing songs. So I wasn't really doing much performing. I hooked up with some friends, another songwriter in Edinburgh. And I would go through there and play with him. Uh, and then I came to Glasgow and, and sort of, it, really when I came to Glasgow, I came to, to join another band, which didn't work out, but as a keyboard player, but I, I was all, all the time I was doing this, I was really writing songs. Songs were, were kind of just happening and I, I would just maybe record them on a cassette or whatever. And that was, that was my kind of quiet, you know, in, into music. Did you, did you feel you had to go to Glasgow? You had to make that move to, because you were working as a teacher. You had a, a ideas to I, become a teacher. I took a job as a teacher, really. I was working as a youth worker, which was my real thing. I really wanted to do that. But I realised that music was kind of plaguing me a little bit. You know, it's, it's a funny thing. And you sometimes meet kids, young people that say, oh, I don't have time to, I don't have time to write a song. I don't have time to do whatever it is, you know. And I think that, that's just not true. It's never true because you will find, you'll find a hole in your day, you know. If you play guitar, no one will, no one will take it off you. You know, what I mean. And if you play, sing or play piano, or you want to write songs, no one, will, no one will take it off you because you'll, you'll find space. And that's what I did. I, it just got a point where I really wanted to do it. So when I came through to Glasgow, I'd qualified as a teacher. I didn't want to teach, but I took a job as a teacher just to get some money. And I was playing the band, so I kind of I was on the escape committee, you know, in, in the school that I was in. From you know, there's, there's always a wee escape committee in the staff room. You know, what's what's your plan? Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I want to be a ski instructor. Okay, there's <laughs> another guy that wanted to be an actor. He did. It was great, uh, but I loved it. I actually really enjoyed the school. It's St. Columbus. I went out in Mary Hill. Still keep up with lots of the staff. Uh, it closed down not long after I left. It was a small school. Um, uh, it was a great community school, and uh, it was my first experience of also of real of just in a Catholic environment which I, I really enjoyed and uh, and lots of great kids who I still bump into are still very lovely uh, people one of one of whom my great star ex-people well, now works for the Scottish government and was responsible for the vaccine rollout last year Stephen Gallagher great guy 
Of course, the teaching profession missed out on you as well, Brian, didn't it? Because uh, you could well have been well, teaching at that, that school. That kind of teaching did. I mean, I ended up, my, my only ever thought, Ricky, about other dreaming about being a football player was, was teaching because it seemed to me a, a wee bit like you, although I didn't know so much about the potential in the high school. I went to probably the same idea of an escape committee, but they all, the, the teachers that I had, the inspirational teachers, seemed to be quite happy doing what they were doing. Yeah. And uh, and also, I quite liked the idea of the holidays they got. <laughs> you know, so not not that I'm shy of working at that kind of, I just kind of like this idea, you know, and my, my kind of favourite discipline was more in maths and, and physics side of it, but I didn't, I didn't go on to become a teacher in the sense that you did, but I went on after I finished playing football, coaching and other aspects. What I did was really teaching football, which allowed me to fulfill that second kind yeah. of dream, I suppose I had. But a question that I wanted to ask you about teaching, is there any point after, you know, all the fantastic things you've done and great events and travelled all over the world, was there any kind of moment at any time you thought, mm, I should have just stayed as a teacher? <laughs> uh... Not, not really. Uh, in the sense that it wasn't a great time. I mean, I enjoyed it. Listen, I had, a, I had, I had a, I've talked about this in my book. I won't bore people with it, but I had an inspirational head teacher who was a really great guy. I had a great head of department and, and said incredibly inspirational pupils as well at some points. Um, and so there was great moments. I think the trouble was when I was teaching actually there was an industrial dispute going on. And for example, people couldn't, you know, one of my pals came and said, do you want to fancy taking a football team uh, yeah, on Saturday that. morning? And we weren't allowed to do it because it was an industrial, you know, we were sort of working to rule and all that kind of thing. Um, and so, the, you know, there was a lot of things that you would have wanted to do, do drama clubs, put on shows, that I was an English teacher, you know, that was the kind of thing that you were doing. And it, it was tricky. So it wasn't, it didn't leave a great sort of, aftertaste in that sense um, uh, but what I do miss and I think what you're alluding to which is really great I think there's something about being with kids um, and watching them be inspired because they inspire you know my, I used to have a, a, a drama uh, lecture tutor you know who used to say well I don't know what it does I don't know what it does for them but it works wonders for me and I think that's that's true and I, I bet you that's what happened to you when you were coaching kids because there's something about, I'm a patron of a, a thing, a, 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 an organisation called Musical, which is music for people with multiple disabilities. And on Friday, they did a concert in Glasgow. And I've watched, I've watched one of the girls in that group uh, from 10 years ago when I first went to see them. Nothing to do with me, by the way. I'm only, a, I'm only just a name on the thing, but I tried to encourage them. And they were doing one of my songs, Dignity, on Friday at this concert, so I was introducing this. One of these girls, Shannon, in this, when I first w watched this group, had no language, no language. So the only thing she could do was, she had a fantastic time, was beat her head back and forward. And I would go back, and the next day I'd go back and say, well, wait a minute, Sh Shannon's starting to sing. Yeah, well, yeah, she started to sing. And on Friday, she was singing lead vocals with the other lead vocalist. And then I thought, wait a minute, where's that harmony? <laughs> Shannon's singing harmony. And the next minute she's introducing a song. So to see that happen through music, you know, is fantastically inspiring. And that, Matthew, is, is the sort of thing I, I kind of, you know, I do miss that that whole thing where you, you see people's lives changing for the better and think, gosh, that's great to be part of that. You know, you must have seen that, Brian. Uh, well, I, I had 14 years of doing that, and uh, young people inspire you. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I, the, often like people say to, well, people talk about this thing that, uh, called work 
I think I'm a bit like you, although you did work as an English teacher, though it might have been still fun as well at the time, is that I've never done a day's work in my life, you know, and going in every day, particularly when I was coaching mm. and watching kids was, was inspirational, you know, because we, the whole kind of ethos for at Manchester United was there is that it, because of the, in my, from, from me becoming a football player and the journey that I had to the journey that these young players, it's so, it's, it's premature professionalism. So you're picking kids of eight slowly. You're looking at them at six and seven years of age and then you're taking them into your environment and I kind of, uh, well, you're signing them on at eight years of age. And her whole idea was that whether they're there for a day or a week or they end up becoming football players for Manchester United and, and their country, more likely to be England, that it should be a pleasure for them and that, and they should enjoy it all the way through. So my kind of thing was that everyone has got to be enjoying it, particularly the coaches. And I used to say to the coaches who were saying, look, you're coaching these people. I said, in a lot of the cases, I learned quite early on, this is because uh, a lot of the times, at that particular time, the coaches were male. I said, you're going to be the single biggest male influence on these children's life for the potentially the next eight years, and you have to show them that you can enjoy yourself and you can be successful in what you do, because a lot of them first single parent families. I says, and if you don't enjoy what you're doing, they'll find out quite quickly. And if they're not enjoying it, and I find out that you're no use to us anymore. So you have to maintain that enthusiasm and joy you have for football because they all love football yeah. and they love being with kids. And that's the best thing. And, and it, it, like you just mentioned, there, little, just little things that they, they achieve. You know, I had seen that the, the other day there, for example, uh, I was just sitting and the, the television was on where I was and it was the English Football League's uh, presentation stuff, right? And you can't follow all football from all over the place. So I've, there's enough football on for me to watch. And I would, would watch football every day, but I don't think it's healthy. So I don't really keep up. Yeah, I'm aware that Burnley got up and aware of the playoffs mm. and all the different things. But one of the players that comes up is, is, is one of the three is uh, a lad from Burnley called Josh Brownhill. He was at Manchester United as a kid. And I remember there was three young lads in that same team. And we had we had to tell the three of them that as much as they thought it was a good idea, they had to stop being physical against the other players. There was three of them, not no coaching involved in this. Mm. It's just the way there was. And I was walking down the street about ten years ago, and Josh Brownhill's dad uh, drives a bin lorry, and he stopped in the street. He jumped out, left the bin lorry, ran down the street. I sh I'm just I'm Josh's dad. Oh, Brian, how you doing? He'd just gone somewhere and done something on loan. And he said, oh, thanks very much for having you done. Josh is having a really good time. He's enjoying himself. See you. And then he, oh, say the, the guys are looking over going, what is he doing? You know, <laughs> you know, because they want to, it's like most people, they want to get their shift on as quickly as they can get back, you know, and he's chatting yeah. as far as they're concerned, rob, random guy in the street, you know. Yeah. Uh, so so just we've like, both been inspired by what we call Nundi. We've both been inspired by the Scaffies. Yeah, well, we, just things like that, you know. So yeah. you, every time again, you, you see, and I thought, wow, look at him, he's what he's done for himself. Um, that um, uh, McNeil, who plays for uh, Mark's team, you know, at Everton, he was a young, he got released at Manchester United as a 14 year old. I don't think it was my time, it was there, or he wouldn't have been released. And he's gone on through a different kind of route again to becoming a, 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 a very good, for me anyway, a very good Premier League player who, uh, 
who was one of the ones who was responsible for the wonderful season that Everton had last year. <laughs> <laughs> you got yeah. to say now it's a good season, Matt. You're still in the Premier League, aren't you? <laughs> it is, yeah. Okay, so let's move back onto music, shall we? Um, <laughs> Ricky, for a, for a period of four or five years, Deacon Blue just had hit, hit after hit with uh, singles and albums. Uh, and I could have sworn that you had at least one one number one single. I mean, I would have bet my house on the four Bacharach and David songs EP <laughs> getting to number one in 1990. I mean, I bought that, I bought that single for my 14th birthday, but no, nope, only got to number two. Yes. I, I dare say you can remember what song kept you off the top spot. I do. And and fun enough, the thing about that was we had no ambition. It's kind of, I, I, this may sound false, but we didn't really have very much ambition because what had actually happened was Lorraine had been ill. She had appendicitis we were on tour in Germany and we couldn't work for a while. And on the way out, we'd had to kind of cancel the tours, like maybe earlier in the year and in 1990. And on the way out there, the guys were just going home. And I was staying on in Germany, just obviously because Lorraine was, was in hospital. And Jim, I keep up with it, said, you know, the thing we talked about doing Bacharach and David thing, maybe we should do that, you know, when we get back. And I said, yeah. So as it happened, Lorraine and I got married in the, in the May. And on the Monday after, when we should have been on our honeymoon, we all went to the studio and recorded that Bacharach and David EP. And the label, Sony at the time, uh, uh, Columbia, just, you know, they were kind of like, what are you doing this for? And we said, you know, it's just something I want to do. And if you guys, you know, so oh, that's fine. That's great. All went off and hauled. We didn't make a video. We made a video, but we said, we're not going to be in it. We're all going on holiday. But it was so indifferent to the whole thing. It was top of the box. No, we're not going to top of the box. And it was sort of like, you know, no expectations. So then suddenly it was at number two. I was like, what? And it was going to be a number two for the second week in the third week. And it was, in fact, you're right, it was um, Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny. <laughs> Bye. I can't remember. What, what's his name? What's his name? Timmy Mallet. It was T- Timmy Mallet, but the Timmy band went Mallet. under the name um, Bomb Ballerina. Thank you for that, yeah. <laughs> uh, weirdly enough, we met Timmy. Uh, he's a lovely guy. We met him at, uh, in fact, he, does, he goes up to Dundee and he paints and stuff like that. He likes Dundee. Uh, we met him in Radio 2, as you do. You meet these kind of people, and he had his mallet with him. So we did a kind of photo op. And reserve, you know, but, uh, yeah, but it, it wasn't as heartbreaking as you might think because it was just a thing, fun thing to do. Well, you know, I, I was in the research for this. I looked back at what was in the top 10 and in the charts at the same time. Uh, as that particular single, and it is absolutely littered with pop classics that you hear on the radio and that have been covered and have influenced people over the years. So, you know, although it was a bit of a novelty song that kept you off number one, uh, you know, you were in absolutely stellar company at that time. <laughs> That's good to know. Mark's really enough those those hits there that we're talking about. I mean, these are these are songs that are over well, what thirty years old now plus. Um, yes, but you're still but they're still as popular as ever, and um, you know you're still selling out every every year or two. It seems you say you do these arena tours, and you and uh, uh, people still can't get enough of it. I mean, is it is it people from that generation, or are you seeing a new audience coming along? Is it? Is it I guess there must be. I mean, you know, listen, you got to be realistic. You know, I was at the Springsteen show and in, in uh, Murrayfield recently. I was thinking, you know, it is a people of a certain age and the band of a certain age. But I was there with my daughter, you know, and lots of people were there with their kids. Uh, my kids have all become Springsteen fans, and one of them went over to Barcelona, one lives in America, went up to Portland to see him. Uh, so, you know, you can see how it works, you know what I mean? If, you, if your family plays a lot of a certain music, the kids kind of tend to, to go with it. So I think that happens to us. We've, I don't know what, I don't know what's happened to Deacon Blue. It's, it's, I'm very grateful for it. We, uh, we made a decision. We were doing, 
we were sort of together in the 2000s. I don't know what you call that, 2000 to 2010, but we weren't really doing very much creatively. We didn't make a record. And we came to a point where we think, if we're going to be a band, we need to make records, new records, and we need to be creative. And we made a record called The Hipsters, which I think I'm very, still very proud of, and which now is... Uh, it came in 2011, 20, 2011, 20, 2012, sorry. Um, and since that point on, it's like our audience has grown and we've put out maybe four uh, four studio albums and a live album and I've done solo things. It's It's been really creative. And I think whether or not, you know, obviously people come at gigs, want to hear old songs. That's, that, you know, that's the old joke, isn't it? You know, I'm, I'm about to say something in the gig now that's that no one's going to want to hear. Here's a new song, you know, that's yeah. the... That's the yeah. that's the truth, <laughs> but I think also audiences that respect bands that are alive and creative and you know going doing something that that they're enjoying. So I think that we've been fortunate in that sense that our audience actually has grown again. So this year in September October we're doing the biggest tour we've ever done. We're going off to Australia to do shows that we didn't expect to be doing. Uh, big shows, and I know we're going to New Year to South Africa and Spain, and and it, it, you know it's kind of like I don't know. We're just we're just kind of very grateful that that's happened. So um, I think that the only thing I can put it down to is that it's kind of like Brian was talking about his coaches. You know, it's like we're happy. We're in, I think maybe people are feeding off the enjoyment that we're getting off it because we we are enjoying the creativity. It's a great atmosphere in the band. They're, they're my dearest. Well, one of them's my love of my life and my wife, but the, the rest of them are, are 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 brothers to me. You know that I never I never grew up with brothers. No brothers growing up. So these are the. These are my closest buddies, you know, what, uh, and I'm very proud of them. One thing I always w- said I wanted to ask you if I ever spoke to you was, what is the relationship between Deacon Blue and Liverpool? Because I'm sitting here about yeah, five hundred. I'm about. <laughs> I'm sitting here about five hundred yards away from the Echo Arena, as it used to be, the M&S Bank Arena. And whenever you guys are in town, the place just goes nuts, and and you can't walk past a pub without hearing Dignity or Real Gone Kick. It's just always fascinating. Uh, well, I don't really understand it, but I. Because when we came back, we did a tour in two that we'd split up in '94. We came back in 2001 and we played the M, uh, the no, the what's not the Empire, what's the other one there? Royal Court, Liverpool, the Royal Court, and it wasn't sold out. I mean, it wasn't. You know, I remember. I remember now it wasn't sold out. And then a few years later, I basically in the 2000s did a lot of songwriting, co-writing, you know, for other people. And I was doing a solo tour, and I was in Liverpool, and my publisher. My music publisher was from America. She 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 lived in she was working at the UK Warner Warner's office, but she she was American, so she didn't grow up in the time of Deacon Blue being in the charts and stuff. And she took me out for a drink. She was actually up to talk about renewing my publishing contract, and it was a bit touch and go. And uh, we were walking back from the pub to the gig, um, and as we we're passing the pub. I said, oh, that's, that's, they're playing one of my songs. She said, what? I said, no, there's a pop band and they're, they're playing one of my songs. She looked at me like, what the hell? You know, it's like, I said, I know, I don't know. I, you know, but, and then I realized there's something obviously goes on in Liverpool that we hadn't factored on. And I'm not sure, uh, I'm not sure what it was, it, what started it. There was a, there was one amazing night that we happened to be in the Royal Court in 1989 about a month after Hillsborough. And we got a lot of letters from people saying they'd lost people or they were at Hillsborough or someone was meant to be coming to the gig who couldn't be there because they'd gone and died at Hillsborough. And 
you had to kind of talk about that in the gig, and the gig became a kind of you know that, you know, that way. And only in Liverpool this can happen is it, it's sort of the audience becomes the stars really of the show, and people start from the beginning of the show throwing flowers on stage. There's flowers, flowers, flowers coming on stage, and and we had to do a song to talk about this, and and we did this song, which was really quite a moment, and we dedicated obviously to the the loss of. Of, of of the lives at Hillsborough, and I was at the front of the stage, obviously. And um, as soon as we finished the song, the entire audience did a rendition of "You'll Never Walk Alone." So I thought, well, we need to get this gig going again because it's now come to a dead stop. You know, it's it, it really is it's almost too emotional. And I turned around the band to say, you know, let's get the gig going again. And the entire band were just in pieces. You know, it was it was so emotional. Of course, I mean, just terrible stuff, and it's still, you know, it's still, it's still affects it. So whether there was something, something about that night that carried that that carried carried us with with people of Liverpool, but for some reason we've made a, a connection to, yeah. to, to oh. the city, and and we're listen, we're hugely grateful for it because it's it always feels like home when we come there. I have to say it. Also have a great connection with Manchester, with Newcastle, with Birmingham, you know. But it's this, there is something special in Liverpool, and it's, it's it just made, it made me laugh because you obviously tour as a solo artist sometimes, don't you? Just you at the piano telling stories, yeah. and you know, which is a great tour. I've, I've seen you do it. I saw you do it at New Brighton a few years ago, and I felt a little bit sorry for you because I thought I felt the audience there were just desperate for you to do Real Gone Kid or Dignity. And I think <laughs> at one point you were like, "Look, that this isn't that kind of gig. We're playing, at the, we're playing at the arena in September. Come and see yeah. us then." You know, you almost had yeah. to tell them to calm down, which I think must be a different difficult balance for you as an artist but it's but it's great to be able to have those the two performances yeah i think actually i played at the um the philharmonic in september then it was wonderful really one of the best nights ever and it kind of people had got the you know got what the show was and wasn't and it was it was lovely you know yeah it's, uh, i remember it well <laughs> Uh, Ricky, you've also been turning your hand to radio uh, and you've got a show on BBC Radio Scotland called Another Country, which uh, explores the landscape of Americana. Uh, how did that all come about? Um, actually, kind of weirdly, I was in doing an interview with the BBC and an old friend of mine, Stuart Cruikshank, oh, God rest his soul, he's he a great producer, really. I mean, just a total music guy who would just do loads of stuff about music and lots of bands in Glasgow and Scotland, really. We talk very fond of Stuart. Um, and I was chatting to him one day and I said, yeah, <laughs> I'd love to do a radio show. You know, like, you know, I, I, I just I just said it and, and he said, oh, I'll leave it with me. And he phoned me up a few months later and said, listen, uh, there's a late night show goes out for me and Anderson. He's going off on holiday for a couple of weeks. How do you fancy Deppin for the show? So I did. And they seemed to quite like it. And they, 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 the, the controller at the time said, we're going to have a six week break in the radio and we're going to give everyone a, ch- a, sh- a chance to have a, a show. So they gave me a late night show, which wasn't really perfect because oh, for various reasons, but I survived it. They didn't pull me off here. And about a, one thing led to another. They they asked to do a sort of specialist show, which is called Specialist Show, which was called the Ricky's American Tunes. And when we kind of did that, and then a guy arrived up from Radio 1 and said, we're going to recommission the show, but we want to make a country, an Americana show. This is about 2008. And a guy arrived up from Radio 1 called Richard Murdoch. My, my, he's been my producer for the last 15 years. We met in the canteen and I said, um, do you know anything about country music or Americana music? He went, no. I said, well, neither do I. Um, and uh, let's take it from there. 
Um, and we kind of did. I mean, we, I did. It's not true that we we both loved certain things. You know, we both knew. I mean, I, I certainly grew up loving Graham Parsons, Emma Harris, and all these kind of things. But, you know, be- below that, I didn't really know very much at all. And I think in some ways that's been the secret, is that we, we don't try and bluff anyone, and we just try and play things that we, we love. And there's so much stuff to play. I mean, there's so many great artists to play, and, and, and we've been just so lucky. Because by the time that Americana country artists come to us, they've got loads of experience of of doing things. So they're, they're great interviews to do because... You know, you don't, it's not like interviewing a shoegazing band who just want to be cool. You know, they, they will tell you stories and, and be engaging and funny and all the rest of it. So, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful Do it, doing it tonight, live tonight again on a Tuesday night. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, no one's found us out yet. So here's open. I've just got one question for you then to finish then. You got, I've, I've given you an option of your last ever gig with as Deacon Blue, right? <laughs> And here's the options for you. Glastonbury <laughs> or Kermarnock Jail. <laughs> Do you know what? Um, I, I love playing Kermarnock Jail. Playing in the jail, we did play Kermarnock Jail, that's what Brian's alluding to. The thing about playing in the jail, now I have done gigs in the women's jail. I've done solo shows in uh, shots. The jail's a different place these days. So many people are kind of just, you know, in old days, if you do something in the jail, oh, everyone's there, you know, because it's, there's nothing happens in the jail. The trouble is now so many when we played it, I was talking to one or two of the staff and saying, you know, the guys now, a lot of them, there's so many drugs in the jail and so on. It's just, you know, they're, they're kind of not even engaged with that that kind of thing. The idea of a gig is not what it should be. It's, prison's a very sad place. I, I, I think people, I hate people that criticise prisons without going into them. You know, and, and when we did the gig, it was interesting, people said to me, why are you doing that for them? I said, well, do you ever go into jail? Do you ever know what, why people are there, you know? There's a whole lot of people in prison that shouldn't be in prison for a start. So it was a special place. I don't want to say that. But <laughs> Glastonbury, which we might have been playing this year, but we're not. But Glastonbury in 2011, when we played it, was actually, that was the rebirth of Deacon Blue. And it, it was a magical night. And um, I've talked about that in, in the book. And I've talked about it also in stage. It was, it was something special. It was that the acoustic tent became the Barrowlands. And I don't know if you can ever go, you know, you can't go home again. You can't do that gig again, but I would give it a good shot, Brian. It's that time again when we spring a quiz on Brian and our unsuspecting guest. Ricky? Deacon, Deacon Blue may have spoken about a ship called Dignity in their anthemic 80s hit, but we've got a ship called Man City. Allow me to explain. From the 1930s into the 1960s, the Consolidated Fisheries Company of Grimsby began naming 29 of their fishing trawlers after football clubs. So we're going to give you five alternate names in the penalty shootout format, <laughs> and it's your job to spot the prize catches from the red herrings. So if you think each club had its name on the back end of a fishing boat, please say aft. And if you <laughs> think it's total if you think it's total codswallop, say daft. Okay. Aft. Are we clear? Aft and daft. I've got it. Okay. All right. You two is our guest. Something better to do with your time. <laughs> <laughs> and that is that is true. We need to get a hobby uh, other than this. One. This, is this, one. this is perfect. Oh right, okay. If it's a joint venture, okay. isn't it not? It was. Okay, Ricky, as I guess you get the honour of uh, launching the quiz. And your opener is Dundee United. Were they on the back of a Grimsby trawler? Exactly. I'm going to say aft. 
Sorry, but it's daft. You've missed your first penalty. It seems that none, see of, their, even none of their boats, well, none of their boats were named the Scottish clubs. Yeah. Okay, Brian, your chance. You're kicking off with, quite aptly, Manchester United. Aft. Oh for 2. Daft. There was a Man City, but not a United. Oh, so. Ask us that question again. <laughs> <laughs> no, no retake. Sorry. Uh, okay, Ricky, your second boat is Notts County. Well, something going to say something like Hartley Pole, and I was going to go for it. Notts County, I'm going to go aft because they were like the first club in the league or something like that. So surely, surely. Well, it's reasoned logic, but you're right. It's aft. Um, yes. The Notts County boat, at, um, it came across at the hands of German U-boat 701 in World War Two. Okay, Chucky, uh, pressure's on now. Uh, your second fishing vessel is the Leicester City. Daft. Daft, did you say? De-aft. Okay, well, well, you went the wrong way because it's aft. The boat, like its namesake this season, ran aground and was lost forever. Well, it's nowhere near the sea. Why is it called after that? Yeah, okay. Argue with us. Just giving the answers. Ricky's got the initiative, here, hasn't he? Yeah. Uh, right, Ricky, to extend your league, um, extend your lead even. Um, your third one is Real Madrid. Real Madrid from Grimsby. They're not going to want a Real Madrid. They want, no, 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 they want Lincoln City. I'm going to say daft. You spurned your opportunity to go to Did it? Did it yeah, on? unfortunately, the Real Madrid was the only one of the football trawlers named after a foreign club. Bloody, bloody glory hunters. What happened to it? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't do that much research. Like oh, you said, do I <laughs> I've got a wife and kids to deal with. I can't spend the whole day looking through fishing registries. <laughs> well, you pretty much did. You should let, you well, let Matthew true. do it. He's got nothing else to do. Uh, yeah, oh, that's, that's true. Right. Okay. Brian, number three for you is Liverpool. Aft. This is an awful shooter. This is like the 1986 European Cup final. <laughs> arrested. Against Barcelona, uh, daft. No Liverpool, but there was an Everton who seemed to be doing something of an un, uh, who, who was something of an unsunkable ship. Uh, isn't that right, Mark? Yeah, yeah that's right. We're doing what, the, doing what the Titanic couldn't. Okay, Ricky. So uh, your fourth penalty is uh, Plymouth Argyle. Coastal. I'm feeling it. I'm going to say aft again. Oh, we've given you the eyes there. It's a daft. Um, well, it's not a, not a boat, despite being one of the UK's top fishing ports, Consolidated uh, Fisheries. Maybe it's rivalry, not that's, that's to name one of its boats. Yeah. yeah. So there you go. So we st- I think we're still at 1 0 to Ricky. 1 0, yeah. And the penul- penultimate penalty yeah. for you, Brian, is one of your old clubs almost, Aston Villa. Daft. Did you say daft? Yeah. Yes. Finally, another vessel that saw active service. During World War II, it sustained too much damage from the enemy off the Norwegian coast to make it home and was sunk by fire from uh, our own forces. But it's 1-1. Right, one, one. One, one. Oh. Yeah, so, Ricky, your final It's a litany of disaster, really, isn't it? This, this quiz. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting more depressed. And these it is, yeah. Sunk. <laughs> yeah, so, Ricky, your last one is Port Vale. I've gone aft every time, so I'm going to go again. After oh, you've chosen right, uh, well done. Hey, keep her dad the wrong way. <laughs> the uh, 
Yeah, the, the Port Vale had a long life, which included being involved in some tricky encounters with Icelandic vessels during the Cod Wars of the oh, 1970s. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I used to enjoy that news on yeah. the news. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was an avid watcher of that. <laughs> well, there's nothing else to watch. You had to watch it. <laughs> You've got to concentrate now, Brian, because you could make this one all. A uh, 2 2, sorry. Um, and you get to finish with the shootout with Derby County. Daft. D. Daft. You skied it. That's Shit. despite Derby being just about as far from any sea as you can be in the country, they did have a ship named after them. So, Ricky is the victor, 2 1. Well done, Ricky. I think I think we did all right. I have to very let, proud. Very I have to proud. let you into a secret. My idea for the quiz was Fergie sings the blues, and I was gonna. <laughs> I was trying to find out what music Alex Ferguson listens to, which and then do like a true or false. But I couldn't find it anywhere. So what? Well, but music he listens to. Yeah, Frank Sinatra. Frank Sinatra. Yeah, that's yeah he loves all. I, I needed Matt ten. Monroe. I needed ten. All of them. All of them. Matt yeah, Monroe. All of those okay. kind of people. I knew. Like I knew. I, I knew I Martin. All of that. Push. I knew I couldn't ask you. Mm. Give, give the game. I just. It was one of those where the the uh, title of the quiz was better than the actual idea. But uh, <laughs> we had a we had a debate. Ricky was asleep with us with Alex Ferguson talking about music. He was always doing that. You know, he'd, he'd sort of half start singing some. He could sing. A, I can't sing at all, but he could. You could tell it was a tune, you know, but it, it's it's a few little words and then it'd be the, the dooby-dooby-doos and all this kind of thing, you know. And well, he he didn't pay that, well, clearly didn't pay that much attention to it, but uh, at United, uh, when it first, I don't know if it first started, or it was always there uh, from we were from 86 or 87, but United used to come out onto the pitch to Tina Turner's uh, Simply the Best. Oh, did they? I didn't know. Yeah, that. yeah. And, uh, and, and then Until I pointed, another team took it. <laughs> well, well, I pointed it out to him, right? And I don't know if you've seen the film or Fergie's film, but yeah, certainly when he was a manager and at the end of his playing career, he was, he was not very, uh, um, let's say, of, uh, a fan of Rangers, you know? So I, I just have to <laughs> mention, you know, that. You know, I says, you know that there's the song we come out. He goes, well, well, what is it? You know, and because he'd not, he didn't know it was Taylor Turner or whatever. I says, it's the Rangers come out to that at Ibrox, you know. What? 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 up? What up? Body having that? What up? Having that again, right? <laughs> so I thought, I, I thought that's quite good. Then so there was a thing about we we're going to have a new song, you know. And he was kept coming out with these all these Matt Monroe and all this, and I'm going. <laughs> This is not inspiring. You might, you might think it's good and all this stuff and all that stuff. And I'm going, this is, you can't be, can't be having this. And they go, ah, you just fucking pick one. So you picked the Stone Roses? Yeah. So it's you? Yeah. Uh, I'll tell my son this. He loves that. He, yeah. he loves that. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're, if we're going down to Manchester and he's going to a game, or, yeah, he's, just... tell you, he's blasting it from upstairs and yeah, he's so, getting into the atmosphere. So he's a big Man United fan. So that's good to know. Yeah, there you go. That's right. another another of my achievements, the three-inch pass and uh, picking a good song. Mm. <laughs> Nothing like the Z cars tune, the lads. I've got to tell you, that's still the best. Oh, for well. <laughs> oh, you're playing to the gallery now, Ricky. <laughs> yeah, what's dropped through our letterbox for Brian and Ricky, Matthew? Okay, Ryan Coyle is first out the mailbag with this one for Ricky, and he's put you right on the spot here. He said, if Brian McClare was a song, any song by any artist, which song would it be? 
<laughs> oh, <laughs> Sam McClear was a song, <laughs> any song by any artist, which song would it be? Oh my goodness, I don't, I have no idea. Um, but it has to be a good one. It has to, it has to be a good one. It has to be one that lasts. Um, so I'm going to give him a, I don't a pick my way because I know what you think about my way. <laughs> I'm going to pick you, I'm going to pick you a Salford song since you're, you're kind of a Salford lad these days, I guess. Uh, I'm going to pick a dirty old town. Oh, what a good choice. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> what a good choice. For being put on the spot, you did well there. No, that's uh, magnificent, that, yeah. Okay. Uh, Ross Smith has a couple. First one for Ricky. What was the reason for mentioning the drink Raki in Dignity rather than any other drink? Well, it was probably ignorance, really, but I was in, I was, I wrote the song in on the island of, um, uh, uh, you know, Heraklion, what they put in that, um, uh, Crete. And, uh, I, I, I didn't actually have it in Raki, but I just kind of searched around and what is it, the drink here kind of thing. And then when we first, first did a TV show, someone put a, a map of Turkey on the background. So <laughs> uh, someone said they drank Raki. So that was what that was. It was all about just being abroad. It was just home, you know, home thoughts from abroad, all that kind of stuff. Fair enough. And his second question, and you alluded to this a few minutes ago when we were talking about Tina Turner. He said, why did you choose Manchester United as your, as your English team? I don't really. I mean, I have to say, when I was growing up, I, I kind of liked Spurs. I had a Sabutio, a, a Sabutio team that had Fulham, Spurs, and uh, and Aston Villa. But what actually happened was, and I always followed the Scottish guys when they came to England, and so I I, I really did actually like Liverpool a lot because of Kenny Dalglish and Liverpool. But you know, you know, because of um, because of Bill Shankly and. And I suppose Man United got into this, the soul of lots of us because of Matt Busby and then, of course, Fergie. So we were always interested in the Fergie story. So my pals and I always really just kind of followed the results and talked about and liked them in Europe and all that kind of thing. And then when my young lad was, we were in Manchester one day and I, Alex McLeish, who's, who's, who I knew a little bit, had set up for me to go and visit Carrington Training Ground with my young boy who was seven years old. And, of course, if you go and meet Fergie and you're Fergied, uh, and you have that kind of moment and you meet some of the players, uh, he became a Man United fan for life. So I tend to go down and, and see them. But I, I do have to say, I, I'm very fond of, I know you can't be a Man United fan and a Liverpool fan, but I'm not, I'm a Dundee United fan really. But I, so I, I do enjoy, I like to see Man United and I like to see Liverpool doing well. I actually like to see Everton doing well too. I, I've got a real soft spot for, for all these clubs. I can't say that for Man City really, to be honest with you, you know. I don't support teams from Abu Dhabi. Fair enough. Questions from Stuck in the 80s. I sent one for uh, for Ricky. Football dressing rooms are notorious for giving a stick to their teammates. Are bands the same? Uh, no, it's it's got to be much more subtle. Uh, there's there's often there is a, the, 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 there could be kind of moments in the you know when gigs went wrong and people would be. There was a famous Deacon Blue one, something in Australia, which we all quote, it's very funny, but it was an after-show buffet of, of sort of cold chicken and various other things. And and it was getting a bit heated in the dressing room. <laughs> and someone, not me, but someone said to one another, two guys were having, having it out about something going wrong. And, we, and one said to the other, don't shake the chicken leg at me. <laughs> and we kind of thought, is that some sort of expression? You know, as you shake the chicken leg, does that mean it's war? <laughs> so it's become a bit of a myth. But no, we don't really know. No, we tend to just be knackered and have a beer. 
Melanie Engelbrecht wants to know, Ricky, is it a comfortable experience at an artist to delve deep into the back catalogue, particularly B-sides, or can it sometimes be difficult? I think, I, was, I mean, obviously songs are a bit like kids, you know, you, you always want, you always love the ones that no one else loves, you know, you know, if you've, if you've got four kids and one of yours, is badly behaved it's certainly you like them more so I, i'm 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 always kind of it's funny certain songs just never make it you know they never make they, to use brian's language they never they never make it off the bench never make it in the squad never mind off the bench so you're often you're often very fond of songs that have just somehow just slipped away and and uh i, I never quite got there so yeah i still have a slight um longing for certain songs that I, I always felt should have been maybe more part of the repertoire than they are. Any particularly you want to mention? Well, there's a song that we did recently called Back Here in Minoland, which actually was the B-side to Real Gone Kid, and I always felt that, you know, I got that right. And the, the first ever B-side of the Deacon Blue Riches, I would say is probably the most the most correct song. And it was written for a friend who died. And I, I, I look back and think, actually, I got that one right. Sometimes you look back and think, oh, well, I didn't quite get that. But I think with Riches, I got that one right. Fair enough. And finally, we've got a question from our good friend Cumbrian Dave, who I know for a fact is coming to see you in Liverpool on February, uh, September the 15th, is it? Something it's like only that. night. It's only night. Yeah, yeah. He, said he, 15th. he said he's coming to see you, so uh, he'll be there. And here he is. Hello, guys. Uh, hope everyone's doing well. Uh, question for Ricky. Out of all the songs that he's co-written with uh, other artists, uh, which is his favourite? Um, well, uh, just trying to think, uh, I think probably high, you know, I wrote with James Blunt because it kind of just went places that I never thought a song could go. It was a massive, it was a follow up to You're Beautiful for him, or in fact, it's a prequel to that because he put out first and then put out again. So probably that one. And I like the song. Um, yeah, we'll go with that. Nice one. Okay, I'll tell him when I see him next. If you tell come Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, all done. Yeah, and with that, I'm calling closing time on this episode. So let's say our goodbyes and thanks to our wonderful guest, Ricky Ross. It's been brilliant, Ricky. Um, what does the summer hold in store for you and Deacon Blue? Uh, summer, for me, the big thing in the summer is my youngest daughter, the third daughter, is getting married. So she's the third one to get married in August. So that's a big, big event. Uh, it's going to happen not so far away from here, which is good as well. Um, and uh, actually, we've just been in Donegal. Lorraine and I have just been in Donegal, and we, we love this so much. And I'm actually going over to do a book event at Seamus Heaney's Book Festival in, in Balachi in Northern Ireland, and we decided just to go back to Donegal again for a few days. It's just a mag- magical part of the world. I don't know if, if you've ever been. So we were swimming off in the Atlantic, and it was just great. So a bit of swimming in the Atlantic, a bit of wading, and then we're off. On tour. Did, did I see today, just a few hours ago, you've been announced to play Radio 2 in the park in Leicester? Yeah, we are. We're going to be doing that as, I think, almost like right at the start of the tour. It, 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 it was going to be a day off, I think. It's, it's no longer a day off, but yeah. it'd be brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that's just been announced today. So look forward to that as well. Uh, and you mentioned one of your daughters there. I've got a very tenuous link through one of them. I'm not sure which one, that my uh, brother-in-law taught one of your daughters to drive. Did he? That's that's he did. Uh, and how is his recovery from all that? Is he <laughs> is he has his, his, the, ca- the counselling's going well? Yeah, yeah. L- tell him whatever he does, don't do my son, because that would actually maybe send him into a long treatment <laughs> program. He's learning at the moment. <laughs> um Brian and Matthew, good uh, good stuff, chaps. Um yep. 
See you next time, eh? It's lovely to see you. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Uh, Brian, it's lovely to see you. Thank you. Hopefully catch up in the flesh at some point when you're up the road. Um, Aye, that'd be great, eh? And I'll sign off with our thanks to you for listening. Please subscribe to Life with Brian on your preferred podcast platform. We're on pretty much all of them. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Brian McClare Pod. We will be back very soon with more from Chucky, Matthew, myself, and, of course, another guest. Uh, we look forward to seeing you then. Ta-da! Life with Brian. Life with Brian. Talking films or music. Life with Brian. Talking TV and food. Life with Brian. Podcast Network.